Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Chris Bircher and this is the Neurodivergent Professor podcasting about all things different. This is episode 160, How to Save the Planet with Neurodiversity. All right, that's a huge claim, but bear with me. I don't think it's a very long way to go to explain what I'm thinking. So uh, the subtitle for this episode might be How We Grow to Deserve Our Planet. So maybe that's a little bit more of an explanation. And how we use neurodivergence to get there is not the only way, but it is a, a way. But, but this was inspired by one of my favorite podcasts called The Great Simplification by a guy named Nate Hagens and his, his interviewees talking about climate change and unsustainable growth and sort of where we are as a planet with respect to the future of the biosphere. Now, there's a lot of gloom and doom in that world, and there's a lot of climate change deniers, and it's sort of become this identity crisis of us versus them, and I don't really want to get into that. Um, I think there's enough evidence to suggest that humans are screwing up, and that's the only argument that I'm trying to make, and it isn't just the planet. It's things like depression, inequality, rampant income inequality, uh, corruption in politics, you name it. I don't think you have to look very far to see symptoms of an unhealthy ecology uh, worldwide. And that includes humans and it includes all the animals and it includes all the biotic and abiotic measures. And a lot of this is coming from my need or, or the emergence of this theme of marrying ecological principles with sort of humanistic or, or psychological elements of what it is to be human, you know, kind of the ultimate answer to my big questions of what does it mean to be a human and, and what do I do with this lifetime and what do we do together and, you know, how, how am I an individual but also simultaneously connected? I believe nature provides the best model for that and I'll reference, put links in the show notes to a couple of episodes I did on that already, but I, I feel like that's a direction and I think neurodiversity provides a great model or example or starting place for all this. And that's the argument that I want to make today. And what Nate was saying on The Great Simplification this week, which I was sort of like having a, you know, screaming in the theater at the movie screen saying, yeah, that's what I've been saying. That's what I've been saying. Is he sort of wants to take a step back from all the science. You know, I think in the last couple of years of his podcast, he's had all the scientists on. And even some 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 non-physical sciences like people besides the petroleum and geologists and ecologists and evolution people, psychologists and sort of uh, sociologists on his program that sort of are completing the picture. But as I have said in a former episode, science has sort of run its course. We don't have what we have to learn left from science is not going to help us solve the problems that we have today. Right? It's like we have enough. So quit having the scientists come on and pontificate about what's wrong, and let's figure out how we solve this. And what, what, again, what Nate was going at after with his first episode of 2024 was that we kind of have to get down to the citizens, the actual humans that are going to make these conscious decisions to want to save the planet, for example. How do you convince somebody to save the planet? How do you convince 
like a very anti-climate change or denier type person to do something good. You know, that saving the whales is a good thing. How, how do you change those mindsets? And, and that's what he's getting at. He's like, I think we have to sort of shift to focus on individuals. And that's what I've been saying forever. And I've never, I'm not sure that I've ever really vocalized it, but the idea is that I, I, I take a very people first approach to these things. I think we have enough information. What we need now is sort of the transformation of that information into our being. And how are we being that is in disagreement with these goals, that these problems, right? Or in agreement with the problems. And how do we need to change our being, which is like not necessarily our behaviors and what I do, but our very states of mind, our very psychological mindsets. That's what it's going to take to shift. And I honestly believe that if we can make changes at the individual level and help people do this for themselves, there's, you know, there's people out there who are doing this. There's people out there that don't really know what they need, but they're after this, right? They're seeking mental health assistance and therapy and coaching and counseling and weight loss programs and all these things. They realize there's something wrong in their lives and they're trying to figure out how to fix it, but they just can't connect the dots. And so I think once enough individual people, quote unquote, figure this out, uh, they can then turn and help those more easily reached people and that that mass will reach some critical threshold and the ball will just sort of start rolling. And I also fundamentally believe, this is sort of the punchline of the whole thing, that this mindset shift, whatever you want to call it, will produce the solutions that we need and sort of reduce future problems. You know, we've got, humans have gotten away from our sort of natural state of existence due to things like technology, much of which is awesome, like I've said before. You know, we don't die in childbirth. We don't die from, you know, uh, bacterial infections. You know, our lifespans are longer. We have a better quote-unquote quality of life and all of those things. A lot of that is good. But we, you know, that journey has also removed us from the connectivity to each other and the planet. And these are, the, and I believe that these are the ultimate causes. And I don't know what to call this. It's like a return to an ecological mindset or something, a reset of our human psychoecological condition. <laughs> I don't know. But briefly, I just want to go through kind of what I see the symptoms to be, the causes, and the, I guess basically the solutions and how neurodiversity can, can serve as a template for uh, implementing those solutions across the board in all communities. So what's wrong? There are, are extrinsic things wrong, things like pollution, climate change, um, the way we grow agricultural crops and distribute them around the world in, in an unequal way so that some people are starving and some people are throwing foods away. Those are all sort of extrinsic things that we you know, should be able to modify but for global geopolitics and capitalism. <laughs> then there are intrinsic problems like depression and anxiety and being misunderstood or um, um, uh, 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 prejudice against marginalized groups. I don't think anybody, again, I say you can, you can, you can't, you can't 
look across the room without seeing one of these problems, right? You can't read the news. You can't look at social media. You can't be a human and not be able to write down two or three things that are quote unquote wrong with the world, either in an extrinsic sense, kind of out there or in an intrinsic sense within us as individuals. The causes of these things, I think ultimately are our, 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 our slow march toward increasing reductionism and separateness sort of embracing the rugged individualism that is a part of being a human because we are individuals in a society and forgetting about those connect, connect connections. And that has a lot to do with our values. We don't value connectivity. We don't value love. We don't measure our worth as human beings in those terms anymore. We measure in things like money and celebrity and status and power. And that process, I I mean, I'm not going to be able to summarize that in any 30-minute podcast episode, but I talk about it a lot. It's kind of inherent in most of the episodes that I've ever done. And and again, I think this has happened 15 to 20,000 years ago, this slow, increasingly exponential shift into, you know, modernity, if you will, with all of its problems. And now it's just simply time to, to take stock, to sit down and go, okay, what was good And what have we been trading off? It's kind of like AI, right? We're doing it all over again. We did it when we burned fossil fuels. We did it when we planted crops. Uh, We did it when we had the technological revolution and sort of interchangeable parts and Eli Whitney and all that stuff. We're blinded by the technological advances to the point where we don't see or even look for what could be uh, undesired consequences of these things. We're doing it right now with AI. All we see is really the financial attraction of AI and we're everybody's doubling down on doing all these things and we and we we few people are actually thinking about what problems this could cause. And again, in the ultimate scheme of things, all I'm asking is to weigh the pros and cons. It's a simple economic analysis if everybody's so into capitalism. I mean, it's a return on investment. You know, if something like an iPhone buys us you know X units of quote-unquote advancement in humanity, but yet it costs us 10x uh, steps back as far as sacrifices, then that's not a good investment. (laughs) And we don't do those types of analyses. We're so blinded by moving forward. And again, because of those values, we don't value the things that might be lost. And so why would we measure them? So those are the, that's the ultimate causes. And the symptoms, um, or excuse me, the solutions are, are what, I, what I see always. The solution begins with you. It begins with me. It begins with individual human beings. And as much as we are individuals, you know, but we do, we have individual responsibilities, individual consequences of our actions. We do act as individuals within the community. And that's what has to change. Our personal growth, put it under that umbrella, right? Our own self-awareness and expression of love and feeling of connectivity. And uh, those things have to come first because that's what's missing. You know, we're looking at this in a top-down kind of way. We're looking at this as if we can manipulate politics by voting, which we know doesn't work because of corruption. If we if we can manipulate economies from the top and the rich people will all trickle down, we know that doesn't work. Top-down management of human health and a biospheric health doesn't work. It's gone. I'm done. It's finished. If I if I want if you if somebody will offer me free tuition, I'll do a dissertation on this, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm I, I, 
I'm not going to spend that much time trying to make that point because I personally think it's very obvious. It's time for a shift towards bottom-up regulation. And what's, you know, in this pyramid that I talk about, humans are kind of at the bottom, really probably are all the other animals below us. But like the Lorax, we have to speak for the trees because they can't, this, because the trees have no tongues, right? So it, we change ourselves, and then that increases upwards. Then four or five people get together and they make a movement. I would love to get together with a handful of other sort of neurodivergent or ecological minded podcasters and sort of form a group and a Facebook group and get people talking and sort of work on it that way. Talk about individual practices. What do you do to maintain your sanity in such a way that you feel like you have excess energy to contribute to helping others grow in the same way? Then those Individuals will form groups who will form bigger groups who eventually that will you know, create its own inertia and trickle up on its own by, by, again, reaching some critical mass where there's enough of these groups that have enough of these voices that have mass influence that start to influence other people. Once we've reached sort of the easy-to-reach, low-hanging fruit type people who know they have some desire to change and to grow but haven't figured it out yet... Then we can go on to the next group of people, and then we can move on to the climate deniers, and then we can figure out how to identify with these people in such ways that we re-identify with the classic historic values that we identified with for hundreds of thousands of years, and to see the wisdom and remove the blinders that are inherent with the sort of psychological training that came along with this problem in the first place. It's the snake oil of the capitalist's sales pitch, right? And, and and of course it makes sense. You look at a you know you look at say like medieval Europe when they start to figure out the problems of plumbing and now you can you know the water in the Thames no longer kills people, then you sort of go, well those guys obviously are doing something right. I'm jumping on board that bandwagon. Again, blinded by the need to get out of that immediate sort of deadly situation without really thinking about how it happened, how it works, and what we do moving forward. It's like the idea of checks and balances or what I've referred to in the past as adaptive management, which is thrown out the window in a blind march forward towards some really poor definition of progress. (laughs) And, And all we have to do is sort of reset that and then find ways to convince other people. And then, then we have the power to dismantle the institutions or not even dismantle them, but, but, but we can sort of redefine the entities that govern and rule our politics and our economies in ways that will improve these things. Because right now, you can't, make, you can't go from black to white. You, know, you can't make these dramatic shifts. And no prejudice with colors there. I'm trying to make the point that, for example, we can't all of a sudden stop using all fossil fuels tomorrow. That's not going to work. All of these things are going to require transitions. But in order to make any of these transitions, we're going to have to make sacrifices. In order to make those sacrifices, we have to redefine our value systems away from rugged individualists. I get mine to a more cooperative effort. We get ours because we've decided that the biosphere is an important thing and that's how it works. And I think what we're talking about here is... Redefining our values and recognizing a couple of truisms about the natural world that are undeniable that we are doing an opposite currently. And that, you know, one of those things is diversity and change. You know, we designed a monetary financial system that 
shuns change. That, do, that, that expects consumers to act in predictable ways, and therefore we have built multiple institutions, including our educational systems, to produce predictable, non-changing, conforming citizens. And that just doesn't work because it goes against our DNA and our biology. Biological species work on exactly the opposite principle. We're all going to be different because the world is changing, and we need to be able to adjust and ultimately adapt to those changes, or we're going to go extinct. And so where the word of the day for billions of years was change and embracing diversity We've tried to reverse that process with with very limited success, I might add. And I think that sort of struggle and that dissonance, if I could figure out a more poetic way to sum it up, does actually summarize the problem I described earlier about what's wrong, what's the bigger problem here. And, and, and that's just it. We're working against the current, uh, the flow. We're trying to walk upstream, <laughs> you know, and it's just harder. And so... Why neurodiversity works really well is because it's just one example of trying to force one element of humanity from a broad ranging band continuum or spectrum, if you will, of archetypes and differences, trying to squeeze that down into a predictable and narrow conforming sort of lane, right? It doesn't work. Part of that explains why we have so much self-identity crisis crises like anxiety and depression and suicide for god's sake because people feel like they don't belong in the world because they don't agree with some prescribed norm that's got to go then we can you know of course apply all kinds of different continua here skin color sexual preference economic standing you know uh job position in the hierarchy you know all sorts of different things but the 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 point is to embrace alternate ideas alternate ways of being alternate identities you know alternate values even as long as ultimately our global values are all aligned if your value is i like to eat other humans that's that doesn't count. I'm sorry. There's lines that we have to draw with that we agree on as a society, which frankly I think we already do agree on many of those things. And then it becomes sort of this dare I say like a, like a, a self love movement where not you know we embrace diversity with love and use the power of connection, and I call that connection love as the guiding force with how we navigate the decisions that we have to make in the world. Hey. There's two cars merging onto the highway at the same time. I'm going to let the other guy go ahead. You know, I'd like to see the world turn into a battle of who's going to let the other person go first instead of who's going to cut the other person off. I mean, that's a really what I'm talking about. And it becomes tolerance. You know, when I I was lucky enough in my family, it was actually on my 50th birthday, uh, I got to take a, my family to go like a gondola ride, gondola ride with a little boat in Amsterdam. It was one of the most spiritual things that's ever happened to me. And the guide on our boat, I feel bad for my family. He and I hit it off discussing music. He was a jazz guitar player and he kind of lived that life and he just lived, seemed, had this idyllic life. And I asked him sort of about what Amsterdam was like because I had these preconceived ideas about Amsterdam, just like I did about neurodiversity, that I knew weren't right. But they're the one that all I had. So this is a guy who's sort of lived there a long time. And he could tell me. And the word he said, I could describe Amsterdam to you in one word, and that's tolerance. And he said, you probably don't really know what tolerance is, although you might think that you're very tolerant. And of course, I, I do. 
And I did until he described He's like, tolerance is when your neighbor is a racist, but instead of pretending that he's not racist or you pretending that he's not racist or hating each other because he's racist and you're not, he'll come up to you in the yard while you're watering your flowers and say, hey, I'm racist. What's going on? And I have to look at him and say, hey, that's cool. I'm glad to know you're a racist. You're my neighbor. And not, I'm going to kill you, or I think you're wrong, or I don't identify as a racist and we're different. It's, <laughs> you know, this, this thing I'm asking for isn't let's all become people that we get along with. <laughs> it's understanding that there are differences between us that, you know, given these global value systems like not killing each other, um, that we've agreed on, but, you know, these subtle differences, there might be things that we don't like. And I'm not saying racism is one of them because I really think that has no place in this world that I'm talking about, but it's probably going to exist. The point there with the tolerance is being free to not wear a neurodivergent mask and be the person that you are. Expressing your uniqueness is imperative to this thing working. And so all forces that lead people to not be themselves in the collective need to sort of be oppressed. And that's all part of that value system system change. And so I think as far as embracing diversity and tolerance, neurodiversity is a perfect example. Let's shift our stigmatic thinking about people that don't act like us, think like us, walk like us, look like us, all of those things from you're different than me and I don't like you, you're different than me and that's wrong, to you're different than me and I want to understand that because I'm also probably different from you. If you're different from me and I've noticed that, you probably noticed that I'm different from you. And how are we ever going to get anything done if we can't move past that? How are we ever going to get anything done? How do we expect to save the planet if we can't save each other? There it is right there. So someone like Nate Hagens has a podcast that says, here's how we save the world. He can't figure out how to save the world. He finally figures out that we're never going to save the world until we can save each other. In fact, I want to go now, right now, and make one more point, and that is, If we can't save each other and ourselves, we don't deserve the planet. We are on a trajectory that started somewhere between 212,000, 15,000 years ago toward not deserving to live here on the planet. We are effectively driving ourselves extinct in the same way that some gazelle-type animal living on the Serengeti that decides to greedily eat all of the grass for itself so that none of its friends and neighbors can have it would drive itself to extinct in sort of a more obvious Darwinistic way. It's the same thing. You don't shit where you eat. And if we can't figure that out, then we don't deserve this anymore. And we have to think about before we say you got to save the planet or, you know, screw saving the planet, whatever your position is on that particular issue, you got to ask the question, like, <laughs> are we capable of doing this, given the conditions that we live in right now. Are we capable of getting along if we judge someone by the color of their skin? In Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, day, the holiday was a couple of days ago. And I read the book to my seven, you know, a book about his life to my seven-year-old daughter. And I'm thinking, 
This happened a little bit before I was born. 60 years ago, how far have we come? What would Dr. King say if he looked at race relations in the, in the world right now? You know, would, he, would he feel like the work he did was in vain? You know, how many steps back do you have to take for every step forward and for you not to call that a win anymore? Anyway, we don't deserve the planet if that remains to be an element of our ecology. And it is a part of our ecology in as much as what we eat and where we live. How we treat each other is a measure of the quality of humans as a species. And if we don't want to be a species anymore, then we can keep doing what we're doing. <laughs> and I'm got, and I've, at the end of the day, I got to be okay with that. And so I don't like I I can't be any part of the conversation of what. How do we change the laws to reduce gender bias? And how do we train ourselves to be drive electric cars? Those are all top level changes that we are supposed to drive down to the bottom, and it's never going to work. And so I don't have time for that. And I love to see someone like Nate Higgins not have time for that anymore. He's finally figured it out. You know, we don't need... That stuff doesn't work. You know, race relations at like Martin Luther King doesn't work trying to change it that way. You can't change politics and hope that it changed people's minds. You can't change economies and hope that it changes people's minds. You got to start with helping the people heal themselves so that they get to a point where their minds are capable of changing, where they can see the light. And it's going to, that they did an easy road, but God damn it, we can do that. (laughs) But we just got to look in the right place. We got to focus on the right place. So that's how we can save the planet through neurodiversity, through through understanding neurodiversity, and through tolerance and uh, embracing diversity in all its forms, and the beauty of the human mind, and and and, and what makes us who we are, and millions of years of evolution. It, it ain't rocket science, folks. Uh, so I'll repeat this last part I've said before at the beginning, you know, the, it's about in order to find solutions to our problems and reduce those future problems, we can simply operate at the individual mindset level and it will trickle up to the collective mindset level and through all of the machinery, uh, that governs human behavior on the planet. I believe that. And I think a lot of other people believe that too. I think that is the revolution. This has been episode 160, How to Save the Planet with Neurodiversity, or How We Grow to Deserve Our Planet Again. <laughs> I'm Chris Bercher. I am the Neurodivergent Professor. I look forward to seeing you next week. If you've made it this far, subscribe to me on YouTube or follow the podcast on your favorite podcast app. I'm on the, the uh, writing website Medium. And I also have my personal blog where all this stuff, it's all the same stuff, and it's shared all over those uh, channels. But I, I appreciate your attention. Take it easy.